Do you like free stuff? I do. BlueprintMCAT.com. Go sign up for a free account. Get access to Blueprint MCAT's Diagnostic, Blueprint MCAT's Full Length One, Blueprint MCAT's amazing brand new space repetition platform with over 1,600 flashcards already made for you, as well as their amazing study planner tool. Schedule out the content so you know if you are on track to take the MCAT when you need to. Again, that's blueprintmcat.com for all of those free goodies. The MCAT Podcast, session number 221. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Blueprint MCAT. The MCAT Podcast is free MCAT prep to help you understand the MCAT, teach you how to break down questions, and give you the skills and confidence to get the score you want on your MCAT test day. Learn more about Blueprint MCAT at blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Next Step Test Prep, the MCAT podcast is here to make sure you have the information you need to succeed on your MCAT test day. We all know that the MCAT is one of the biggest hurdles you'll face as a pre-med, and we're here to give you the motivation and information that you need to know to help get you the score you deserve so you can one day call yourself a physician. Welcome to the MCAT Podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week. As always, I'm joined by an amazing team member from the Blueprint MCAT team, continuing our journey with Alex this week, our lovely Brit, who's going to run us through some bio-biochem discrete questions. Remember, you can get full-length one for free by signing up for a free account at freemcatprep.com. Again, that's freemcatprep.com. Remember, you can get full-length one for free by going to mcatfreeprep.com. Again, that's mcatfreeprep.com. You can get full-length one for free, free diagnostic, the blueprint free online MCAT study planner, and so much more. Again, that's mcatfreeprep.com. Calm. Alex, back for another MCAT podcast this week after finishing, up, after finishing up Passage 8. Sometimes you know, sometimes you don't, that when you click that next button, you're going to jump into a discrete set. Sometimes a different strategy needed for discretes versus Passage, although the last Passage that we saw had some discrete questions in it. What, again, mindset-wise, what do you discuss for getting to discretes in these sections? Yeah, yeah. I think students often do really well, do much better on discretes, perhaps on average, than they do on passages because they they often kind of draw much more purely on content knowledge rather than interpretation. Um, so I always advise students, I was like, look, all, the discretes are, for many people, some of the easiest points that you're going to get on this test. So, you know, you hit that button, you move from a passage to a discrete, you know, you take a step, but take a sit, you know, like sit back for a few seconds, take a deep breath, because, you know, that passage has just dropped off the edge of your universe again. Don't think about it. You know, discretes are in many sense, lots of some of the easiest points that you'll get on the test, you know, easy in a relative sense. Of course, many of them are very difficult. But uh, so I was, you know, I was interested, you know, you see a discrete, leave, the, you know, leave the previous passage behind, you've done your best you know, address, you know, address the discretes now with kind of the full force of your problem solving abilities. 
All righty, let's go ahead and jump into our discrete set again from Blueprint MCAT full length one. We're here with question 44 from our bio biochem section. Woohoo! <laughs> I'll let so, you start. A researcher analyzes a nucleic acid sample. After looking only at its nucleotide composition, he decisively concludes that the sample represents single-stranded DNA and not another form of nucleic acid. Which of the following compositions most likely represent this sample? And then we get many, many, we get a list, a very long list of numbers. There's A is 17% A, 17% T, 33% G, and 33% C. For B, we have 29% A, 14% U. 11% G and 46% C. C is 4% A, 4% U, 46% G and 46% C. And finally, D is 12% A, 12% T, 30% G and 46% C. It's a lot of numbers. Oh boy. So the, the thing right off the bat that kind of stood out to me was like, well, double-stranded things are connected to each other. So you would expect to see relatively equal numbers of things if they're connected to each other, right? In, in terms of what uh, what bases connect to each other, right? A to T, G to C, I, th I think. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and U in there as well, uh, for a, a, a to U as well. Mm -hmm. um, God, I don't, I, I forget so much of this, but that, that kind of makes sense. And so you look at this and you go, okay, wait a minute. Answer choice A, you see 17% A, 17% T, 33% G, 33% C. So right off the bat, that's like, they're connected to each other. There's equal amounts. That obviously is too uniform to be a single strand of just a random n number of things. Am I on the right track? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it probably could be single-stranded, but I think that would be extraordinarily <laughs> unlikely. Yes. You know, like roll the cosmic dice and you'd have this flawless strand of DNA with its, you know, with its base pairs in perfect proportion. Yes. All right. So answer choice B, we see 29% A, 14% U, 11% G, 46% C. So you go, okay, that's not anywhere near uniform. So maybe that's what I'm looking for. So I'll leave that one unstriked through, <laughs> struck through. Uh, answer choice C, 4% A, 4% U, 46, 46, G and C. So again, that's like super uniform. I'm going to cross that out one, that one out as well. And then the last one here, answer choice D is 12% A, 12% T, 30% G, 46% C. And now I freak out and go, wait a minute, my theory that things should be equal is not playing out with answer choice D because you have A and T, mm. which are equal percentages, but G and C are not. And so then I go, well, why would G and C not be? And I really don't know, but I don't like that one because A and T are the same. So I'm going to go with B. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good that's a great job of eliminating based off uniformity because you're you're totally right. Like, what are the chances that a single stranded DNA would have like its you know it, all of its base pairs in perfect proportion? Pretty unlikely. Yeah. Um, I think the the second kind of concept to bring in here is base pair composition, which is 
you know, DNA consists of four base pairs, A, T, C, and G. You said them yourself. Uh, but U refer- is, is in reference to uracil, which is also a nitrogenous base. It looks very similar to T, thymine. Uh, but instead of being in DNA, U is only present in RNA. <laughs> mm. So in this case, we can eliminate both B and C based off the fact that they just have U in them. Because if it's, you know, if this, you know, if this researcher like sees the results from this, this piece of DNA or, you know, from this nucleotide and they see, and if they see that it contains you, it's like, oh, well, it's not DNA because DNA doesn't contain you. Well, that's a silly mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then that leaves, that leaves us with D as the only option left. So yeah, I agree. Like 12% A, 12% T. This is definitely the test designers trying to throw us off. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but 30% G, 46% C. Yep. In a single-stranded piece of DNA, those proportions must always be equal. The fact that they are not means that this must be single-stranded. Yep. Alrighty, answer choice D for that one. Learn my mistake there. All right, question 45. In a population yeah. of Amish people, the frequency of the recessive autosomal allele for polydactyly is 1.2%. What percent of the population are heterozygotes for the polydactyly allele? Oh, man. All right. So what is allele or polydactyly? Polydactyly. <laughs> yes. So for, for those who don't know, polydactyly is having m- more than five digits. Um, the autosomal recess, uh, uh, recessive autosomal allele, the frequency of it is 1.2%. What percent of the population are heterozygotes for the polydactyly allele? Wow. Uh, right off the bat, are you tempted to eliminate any as implausible? Uh, 97.6. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yep, me answer too. choice D. So answer choice A is 0.0144%. Answer choice B is 1.19%. Answer choice C is 2.37. So answer choice A and D are both kind of extreme high and low answer choice b and c are somewhat similar in terms of their excessiveness yeah i completely i completely agree there is something about uh you know there's something about b and c that make them seem approximately right and something about a and d that it's like no 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 these are like orders of magnitude off in either direction yeah so the the question. Let me rephrase the question, which is always a, a strong thing to do here. What is it asking me? So the frequency of the autosomal allele, this recessive autosomal allele, is one point two percent. The frequency. So it's saying, yeah. hey, one point two percent of the population has this recessive autosomal allele. What percentage of the population are heterozygotes for the polydactyly And then heterozygote means like you have at least one of them, right? You, you have mm-hmm. <sighs> the frequency of the recessive autosomal allele. Are they saying that is the population that's homozygous? <sighs> 
I don't know. Because it's almost like, hey, the population has this frequency. What is the frequency of it? Like, wait, it's just 1.2%. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're asking for people who are heterozygous for the azele, that means presumably, you know, people who carry one copy of the recessive allele and one copy of the dominant allele. Yeah. Um, I like this question a lot because it's a question that if, you know, were I taking the test, uh, you know, so you can solve this with, with a bunch of math. You know, you can, you can uh, the, the equation that we're looking for that describes this relationship between uh, recessive and dominant allele frequencies and percentages of the population that, um, that, have, that have various genotypes is the Hardy-Weinberg equation. <laughs> right off the bat, not, I not Harvey-Weinstein equation? That's a, that's a different equation. De- definitely not. Yeah, but what I, you know, what I approaching this, I'd be like, ooh, like Hardy-Weinberg equation, like hard work. Like, I don't, I don't like doing math unless it's absolutely necessary. So I would, I would look at this and say, well, the, you know, the Hardy-Weinberg equation tells us that, and, you know, for those who don't remember, it's uh, big A plus little a equals one, or sometimes P plus Q equals one. And then it's kind of counterpoint equation, which is, uh, you know, A squared, you know, or rather um, P squared plus 2PQ equal plus Q squared equals one uh which is actually the same equation as the first equation it's just what you get if you square both sides um and uh the individual terms in that second quadratic equation describe genotype frequencies in the population but the general proportion to keep in mind if you have a certain proportion of the population that is um that has the that has the dominant gene and a certain proportion of population that has the recessive gene and then the proportion of them that has that have both together that are heterozygous usually lies somewhere in between because that term in that equation is 2pq so i would immediately look at this and say oh well the frequency of the allele is 1.2 percent that means presumably the people who have the dominant allele is you know 98 point something percent i'd be like well that means i would assume that people who are heterozygous Presumably, there are more of them than there are people who have two copies of the recessive gene. 1.19 is almost exactly the same as 1.2. So I would be tempted to pick C here, which is 2.37. This is how I would solve it with estimation, going off kind of an intuitive understanding of how the proportions work. And then that, and that's, that's a great way to save a lot of time if you understand the concepts kind of intuitively and conceptually. But of course, we can solve this with math as well. So getting back to the question and what it's asking here. Yeah. When it says the frequency of the recessive autosomal allele is 1.2%, that's not saying that's how many people have polydactyly in a like a homozygous polydactyly, right? No. That's just saying that's how many people have at least one allele, this recessive polydactyly allele. Yeah, I always conceptualize this as like, imagine like a big gene pool, you know, you know, li- imagine literally in this case, imagine it's like a, li- a giant pool and it's filled <laughs> with gene copies and it's like represents the population as a whole. And, you know, if you think of like a, you know, an, an enormous group of people, it's like, oh, they all have alleles, they all have copies and they all have two each. But if you think of like a big pool full of these genes, it's like, well, some percentage of them 
will be the dominant version, and some percentage of them will be the will be the smaller version. Will, will be the will be the recessive version. Um, and if we like look in the population, that's what that first equation describes: p plus q equals one. Yep. This isn't in reference to people's genotypes. It's in reference to the um, to the proportion of genes in the population as a whole. Okay. You know, of all alleles in a population where everyone has two, in this case, 1.2% of them are the recessive version. Got it. Um, and that's all. And that's why if we go to that equation, which, uh, if we go to that equation, which describes gene types, uh, you know, uh, P squared plus two PQ uh, plus Q squared equals one. Uh, that's always why, you know, the Q squared, for example, term describes people who are homozygous recessive. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. And you, and you get that in an ideal Hardy-Weinberg population by multiplying the frequency of the, of the recessive allele by itself. And that makes intuitive sense because you would expect that, you know, if 1% or 1.2% of all genes in this population are, um, are the recessive genes, well, then presumably an even smaller percentage of those people will be lucky enough to get two of them. Yeah. All righty. So there you go. Answer choice C, 2.37%. Again, even going back to, to that one, answer choice A and D being the extreme outliers very good test strategy if you don't remember any equation or anything else you you narrow down to 50 percent. yep exactly you know always so you know key skill eliminate implausible answers yes all right am i up i'll, I'll read this one question 46 those species that are capable of both sexual and asexual reproduction will typically prefer sexual reproduction because it a increases the likelihood of each individual offspring surviving b increases the likelihood of beneficial mutations c creates more variation in the next generation or d takes less time to complete so I think just from an evolutionary standpoint, this is a relatively easy question that that we as a species um, tend to prefer uh, more variation in our offspring. Um, I, I, I for one, don't want someone exactly like me as a as a child. I do not wish that <laughs> upon the world. Um, I see myself and my kids, and it freaks me out. I'm like, no, don't have that trait of me. <laughs> um, so I think C creates more variation in the next generation would be evolutionarily the right answer. I think. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, so sexual reproduction is a really valuable me mechanism by which species can kind of like, I always think of it as like shuffling your genetic deck of cards. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you combine the genes of two parents and use that to create more variation in the next generation. You know, this variation is incredibly helpful because it, uh, you know, it creates a more interesting gene spread in the population, which allows them to better adapt to kind of new and interesting situations. Um, yeah. You know, lots of the other answer choices here kind of uh, off, um, they rely on like misunderstandings of how evolution itself kind of works. So, you know, if we look at A, increase the likelihood of each individual offspring surviving. 
know, in a lot of cases, that's actually not necessarily true. Certainly sexual reproduction is good for the whole species because it, incre- it, impre- it improves variation across the entire species. But, you know, often sexual reproduction leads to, you know, unfavorable genes being, you know, being expressed in the next generation when, you know, perhaps by definition they weren't or, you know, they, they necessarily weren't expressed in the parent generation just because that parent generation made it to adulthood. You know, increases the likelihood of beneficial mutations. B, I, that's, not, that, that's not how sexual reproduction works. That, that's separate from the process of mutations, which is kind of species specific, but is yep. not inherently linked to the concept of sexual reproduction. And D, takes less time to complete. I mean, I'm, as I'm sure any, par- any parent can weigh in, that's probably not true. Yeah. Yeah, but a lot of people who aren't sure, like, wait a minute, and they'll they'll spend a lot of time going, did I learn that in biology? Like, if asexual reproduction, does it happen faster? And if it is faster, is that beneficial? Is that something important? And, and that's where they'll get hung up. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, exactly. Right. Cool. An easy one. Yay, I think. <laughs> Question 47, <laughs> go ahead. Decreased number of alveoli in the lungs leads to respiratory, sorry, respiratory distress because uh, A, damage to the respiratory epithelium reduces the ability of the epithelial cells to actively transport O2 into the body and CO2 out of the body. B, reduced surface area in the lungs reduces the rate at which O2 and CO2 can diffuse through the lung epithelium. C, Passive expiration depends on the inherent elasticity in the walls of the alveoli and reduced expiratory volume prevents or reduces subsequent inspiration. And D, the cilia lining the lungs, which move mucus and other debris out of the lungs and keep respiratory epithelium clear, cannot function as well. So this is one of those tricky questions where the answer potentially, one of some of these answer choices are potentially correct but don't answer the question. <laughs> so exactly. Uh, this is, this is a very standard. I, I see it a lot on the blueprint test. I'm assuming it's very standard on the MCAT as well, that, that mm-hmm. they're kind of red herrings. They're like, yes, that's true, but it doesn't answer the question. So yeah, exactly. decreased number of alveoli in the lungs leads to respiratory distress, right? So the first question is, well, what the heck do the alveoli do, right? And those are the little air sacs at the very end that mm-hmm. increase the surface area because you got lots of tiny little pouches and you have lots of surface area in each of those little pockets. And that's where a lot of this O2 exchange can come from. And so as soon as I say, well, what's the kind of role of, alveoli, it's like, well, it helps increase the surface area. Then we have B, reduced surface area in the lungs reduces the rate at which O2 and CO2 can diffuse through the lung epithelium. And so you have decreased number of alveoli, you're going to have reduced surface area. So B immediately stood out to me. Again, A makes sense, but we're talking about decreased number of alveoli, not damage to the respiratory epithelium. So I don't like that answer. Answer choice C, passive expiration. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, and then D against cilia, we're not talking about alveoli. So uh, I, I like all the other answer choices because some of it makes sense, but answer choice B seems to me to answer the question most directly. And you would be correct in thinking so. Yeah. I should have um, been a I agree. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I would eliminate A and D immediately for the reasons that you said, which is like, wait a minute, like, like damage to the, like, we're not talking about damage. We're just talking about decreased numbers. And same thing with D, like, we're not talking about cilia. We're talking about alveoli. Yeah. So yeah, I, w- I would eliminate those immediately as being out of scope. You know, uh, D happens to be a true statement mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that if the cilia are damaged, then they can't move debris out of the lungs. But again, that's not what the question stems concerned with. A is also wrong because epithelial cells don't actively transport O2 into the body and CO2 out of the body. Yep. Uh, you know, the process is entirely passive. Um, yeah, so we're left with B and C, which I think was like the tempting, the tempting answers to pick between. Um, and we can eliminate C because it's wrong, but for quite subtle reasons. Um, passive expiration is concerned. It, it does happen because of elastic recoil, but it's not the elasticity in the walls of the alveoli. The walls of the alveoli consist of just a single layer of epithelium. It's a monolayer of cells practically. It's very, very thin and therefore has almost no elastic recoil. Yeah. Um, the elastic recoil that does provide the kind of impetus for expiration actually comes from the walls of the chest and the diaphragm itself. Uh, so yeah, B here is the right answer. Reduced surface area in the lungs, which is exactly what you would expect from decreased numbers of alveoli because you have less exchanging space, uh, reduces the rate at which O2 and CO2 can diffuse through the lung epithelium because they do diffuse passively. They're not actively transported. All right, so there you have it. Another great session for you. And don't forget to check out, if you haven't, our YouTube channel at premed.tv where we record our sessions in video form so you can see the questions, see the prompts, all that kind of fun stuff. See all the passages for this breakdown of full length one. I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time here on the MCAT podcast. This is MedEd Media.